Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. I believe that God's gonna use his word once again to encourage your heart in a special way. If you wanna know more about Shelter Cove, check us out at sheltercovelive.com. But again, I pray that God uses this message to encourage your heart in a special way today. Welcome everybody, I'm Scott. I'm the teaching pastor here at Shelter Cove Community Church. And we are in a series in the book of James. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles, your smart device, what have you, and turn to James chapter 3. As you're doing so, I have a confession to make. I am a junkie. Oh, not that kind of junkie. I'm a, I'm a true crime junkie. I know, it's just a weakness I have. I enjoy true crime documentaries. Now, maybe you do too. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're judging me right now. I, there's just something about the nuances and the facets of some of these infamous cases, the personalities, the way these events unfold, uh, that just fascinates me. I love history. I love mystery. It's a whole thing. In fact, uh, we didn't have Netflix, and I heard that they were coming out with new episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. I got Netflix, we watched them all, and now we've canceled our subscription. So it's just something that I enjoy doing. And it occurs to me that there have been a number of so-called crimes of the century. Uh, many people can point to some in their own lifetime that were called the crime of the century or the, subsequently the trial of the century. You are probably thinking of some right now. Maybe you're old enough you can remember the Rosenbergs case, the couple that committed espionage against their own country. Uh, we've had some big cases. I mean, the biggest perhaps was uh, the, the trial at Nuremberg after World War II. But in more recent years, we often think of things more, perhaps in the case of Modesto, that are local. Scott Peterson, Chandra Levy. Uh, years ago, you might recall the Casey Anthony, very, very sad case there. And of course, everybody remembers the OJ case. But the real crime of the century and trial of the century, many historians would tell us, predates all of us. Goes back to 1932. The Lindbergh kidnapping case. Charles A. Lindbergh, famed aviator, greatest living American hero at that time, only man to fly solo across the Atlantic in his famous plane, The Spirit of St. Louis, which I've seen at the Air and Space Museum in D.C. This man was a legend. He was a hero to millions. He was an icon, recipient of the Medal of Honor. He married the beautiful author Anne Morrow. Together they lived in this idyllic estate, sprawling mansion, beautiful white house there in Hopewell, New Jersey, called Highfields. They were the perfect American family, picture perfect, had a beautiful curly-headed 20-month-old toddler by the name of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., affectionately known as Charlie. And as the story goes, one night they put Charlie down to bed, they turned off his light, they closed his door. A little while later, maid came in to check on the toddler, but to her consternation, the little boy was not in his bed. She searched the room frantically, could not find him. She hoped that perhaps Mrs. Lindbergh had come and gotten him and taken him uh, for a bath that evening, but alas, that was not the case. She alerted the rest of the household. Mr. Lindbergh came in, searched the room, found a crudely written ransom note there on the windowsill of Charlie's second floor bedroom. He then got a gun. He and the butler scoured the perimeter of the mansion and they found in the dark of night, leaning up against the side of the house, Right next to Charlie's second story bedroom, 
a cleverly designed wooden ladder. The window had been opened. The baby had been taken. A frantic investigation ensued. The family was able to get into contact with the kidnapper or kidnappers. A clandestine meeting was arranged in a dark cemetery at night when an emissary of the Lindberghs met up with this shadowy figure and money was exchanged for a cryptic note that detailed very vaguely the, the condition and the whereabouts of the child, but alas, no baby was returned. The search went on. But nearly a month after his disappearance, a delivery man driving near the Lindbergh's estate noticed something in the brush off to the side of the road there, pulled over, investigated, and tragically found the decomposing remains of the toddler. Authorities quickly deduced that this must be Charlie, that perhaps he had died the very night, perhaps accidentally, the very night that he was taken. And they did apprehend a suspect nearly a year later. He was tried, he was convicted, he was executed. But despite that justice, questions remained. And in fact, theories began to abound. Did this man act alone? Did he perhaps have other accomplices? How could he pull this off? Just one person. But that's not even the wildest theory that began to emerge. You see, it was theorized that the remains found were not actually of the Lindbergh baby, but perhaps of some other deceased toddler. Just to throw off the investigation that perhaps Charlie did indeed survive that night, that he lived a full life and grew to adulthood. And in fact, over the years, several men have surfaced claiming to be Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. And yet, all of those claims were discounted. Not one of those men claiming to be Lindbergh's son were believed. Why would that be? Well, for a very simple reason. You see, in an age long before DNA testing, these men's stories were disbelieved. No one believed that they were who they said they were because not one of them looked a single thing like Charles Lindbergh. And you see, Christians today, oh, they claim the name of Christ. They desire the riches and the rewards of heaven, and yet their life and their speech causes them to look nothing like Jesus Christ. And in our text today, James is going to show us a particular sin that we are all susceptible to that can be used as an example of how we evaluate our authenticity. And without looking, what would you guess that sin might be? Something that we all fall into. Could that sin be prostitution? Well, likely not. I doubt many in this audience engage in that. Uh, could it be violence? Oh, I doubt that very seriously. It's been weeks since I've beaten anybody up. No, the sin that James is talking about is with regard to the tongue, our speech. Would you bow with me? Let's pray and then we'll dive in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, this amazing, challenging book. I pray that you'll guide us by your spirit as we study and subsequently may you guide our speech by that same spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse one in James chapter three. He writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So James is making a surprising statement here. He says, not many of you should become 
teachers. Now, I'm a teacher of the word. And that is the context right here. James is not saying that you shouldn't become a school teacher or an educator of children. The context here, the idea is of a pastor, someone who teaches the word. And there's a, sober, a very sober warning for those who teach the word, those who teach God's people. We have a heavy responsibility. We must take that responsibility extremely seriously. And the reason is that because of our position, we will be judged by a higher standard. And there are a number of pastors who don't take this responsibility very seriously. They don't spend time in the study, learning the Word of God in order to adequately teach it. And that leads to them watering down the message. It may also be that some guys in the pulpit, they, they manipulate the Word to say something that they want it to say, uh, something culturally relevant perhaps. But it may be that some pastors teach the Word accurately, but their life does not back up their message. Now, last week, Pastor Chad talked about how faith without works is dead. If we take the spirit of that, we apply it here, we see that therefore to teach the things of faith without a life of authentic faith, to validate what we're saying, that is to walk a dangerous path. Now, what is it that a teacher uses to teach? To proclaim the word. What is it that we do uh, without the accompaniment of personal faithfulness that might get us in trouble. It's to use this thing in our mouths called the tongue right here. We speak. And what we speak without a life of faith will end up condemning us. The tongue is a dangerous thing. And if it's dangerous for a teacher of God's word, it's dangerous for everybody. And today I'm going to give you seven reasons that we must guard our tongues. First of all, in your notes, reason number one, the tongue is deceptive. There are three areas that we often fall into, areas of sin. There's gossip, there's uh, anger, and there's slander. And all of those involve the tongue. Has anybody ever wronged you? What's your first instinct when you've been wronged? You want to tell somebody. You want to go and, and tattle on the person who wronged you. Now, is that bad? Is it wrong for you to want to tell somebody when so-and-so has wronged you? Well, it depends. It depends on two things. It depends on who you tell and it depends on why you're telling them. All right? Because if your motivation for telling someone about how so-and-so has wronged you uh, is to seek some sort of resolution and that person happens to be someone who is in a position to do something about it, then that is an appropriate motivation for telling somebody and, uh, and if you are in the workplace and a coworker has wronged you, you tell your supervisor about it, that is an appropriate thing because they are in authority over you and they are in a position to do something to resolve the situation, theoretically. And so that is appropriate. But if you go to somebody who has nothing to do with the situation, nor can they do anything to contribute in a positive manner to that situation, that is the wrong course of action. It's appropriate when you are in a situation of life that's very difficult and you're seeking wisdom and you go to somebody who you trust as a source of wise counsel and you explain the details of your situation so that you can receive wisdom from them. That is appropriate. But if you know there's no wise counsel to be found here, but you proceed to eviscerate this person to this person, what's that called? That's called gossip. And so if I go to someone who has nothing to do with the situation and I proceed to uh, present that situation, 
And yet, I couch it in very spiritual terms, and a lot of us do this. We start by saying, listen, I need you to pray with me. We need to pray for so-and-so because here's what's going on. And we proceed to eviscerate this person. We proceed to cut them to ribbons. Well, what's that called? That's called slander. And yet, when we do these things and we, we clothe it all in this aura of spirituality, we don't feel like gossips. We don't feel like slanderers. What do we feel like? We feel like teachers. That's what we think we are. We call that getting prophetic. Oh, I had to get prophetic with so-and-so, right? I just, had to, I just had to rip him a new one in the name of Jesus because, you know, I'm basically Isaiah. That's what I am. I'm Jeremiah, really. I'm a prophet right there. I've waved the banner of the standard. I am wise enough to have seen the error in my brother. I, of course, am vacant of that very error in my own life, but I need to bring justice to this matter. Listen, folks, it is not your moral duty to napalm people in the name of Jesus. That is not what we're here to do. But the tongue is deceptive because in your notes, it disguises hatefulness as holiness. And it makes you think you're doing something spiritual when in actuality, you're playing right into the devil's hands. So that's number one, it's deceptive. Number two in your notes, it's demonstrative. It's demonstrative. James says in verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Here's what your tongue does. It is demonstrative. That is to say in your notes, it reveals what's in the heart. It reveals what's in the heart. When you speak, you are putting on display what is there inside of you. Now, I realize that President Trump is hardly the poster boy for a message on bridling the tongue, okay? I know that, I know that, I admit that freely. However, what comes to my mind, as far as the tongue revealing what's in the heart, is in the events of last week, when our president revealed that he had a diagnosis of COVID-19. And you started to see people responding to that in one of two ways. Now, I, I made a post because I was starting to see some very venomous displays about how he's getting what he deserves. This is exactly what he deserves. And, you know, I hope he learns his lesson and all of this stuff. And I, I made a simple post on social media. I said, no matter what you think of President Trump as a person, if your response to his COVID-19 diagnosis is anything other than wishing him a speedy recovery, then you are revealing what type of person you are. And I got a lot of response for that post. And yet, as to prove my point, there was a gentleman, and I use the term loosely, who commented on that thread saying, well, I make no bones about it. I think all racist Nazis should die. And he just displayed my very point right there. We're no longer friends on Facebook. But when you speak, you reveal what is in your heart. The tongue is like a bucket that you lower down into the well of your heart and what you draw from that demonstrates the nature of that well. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. We need to be like Jesus. When people looked at Jesus early in his ministry in Luke 4, it says uh, uh, that they marveled at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. That is a testimony that we need to have. Your tongue reveals who you are. 
You are not something else in spite of your tongue, okay? You are not a godly person that has an ungodly tongue. You're an ungodly person. If you have a bragging tongue, you're not a humble person with a bragging tongue. You're a braggart. If you have an angry tongue, you're not a peaceful, happy person with an angry tongue. You're an angry person. If you have a lying tongue, you're not an honest person with a lying tongue. You are a liar. Your tongue reveals what's in there. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words condemn us. Your mouth speaks and reveals what's in your heart. Your tongue and your words demonstrate what's in your life. And then number three in your notes, your tongue directs. It directs. Look at what James says in verse three. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. You know, my college days, I was invited to a friend's family farm. They had several quarter horses and I got to ride a quarter horse. Now that was very special for me. I'd never really ridden a horse at that point, except as a child on that horse in front of the grocery store. You put the quarter in, you just kind of go. I saw Pastor Jeremy on one of those a week ago. It was very sweet. Uh, but this was, this was a unique thing for me to be able to ride this horse. And it was just awesome. You know, you start out and they're just kind of walking and then they start to canter and they, you bounce along. And man, when they hit a, a, a dead run, that horse smooths out and they just kind of fly like a missile. You're just kind of flying along the ground right there. But what was striking is when you learn how to do that and you've got the reins, all you got to do is bump the reins one way or the other, and you can control where that horse goes. You could pull back, that horse will come to a stop if they're well-trained. Why am I, little old me, able to control this massive animal? It's because of this little thing called a bit that fits right in their mouth. And when I pull on the reins, that bit controls where that horse goes and what that horse does. James says in verse four, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. You've got this gigantic ship. You think of everything that's on that boat, all the equipment, all the supplies, the cargo, the passengers, the, the total bulk of that vessel. And what controls the direction of that ship? It's that little rudder. Whenever that captain turns that wheel, that rudder moves and this massive vessel complies. In your notes, where my tongue goes, my life goes. My life goes. And that is true in every relationship. What your tongue does determines the direction of that relationship. You know, when a couple is having a tough time and, and they're in counseling and they're on the sofa there and the counselor sees that there's bitterness going on, what's the problem? Well, I just don't feel anything. I just, I'm just not feeling it. I, I can't be nice to this person. I can't speak kindly to them because I'm just not feeling it. Folks, that's not a biblical thing. We don't operate according to how we feel as Christians. We operate according to what God says. So you, you do and say as you are to do and say. You don't let your feelings conduct your life. You are obedient and you let God take your life from there. And, 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 when you ask, when you have a couple that are in, in dire straits relationally, as I've seen, and you could, let's say you say to the wife who's very bitter against the husband, do you, do you love this person as your spouse? No. 
All right. Uh, do you love this person as your, your Christian brother? No. Okay. Do you love this person as your neighbor? No. Do you love them as your enemy? Maybe. Okay. I'll take it. That's a start right there. I'll take whatever, I don't know where you would go after that. If they say no, do you love them as a corpse? I don't know. Uh, all right, if you love them as your enemy, what do you do with your enemy biblically? Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We are to treat our enemy kindly via our speech. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can you pray for this person? Oh yeah, I pray for him all the time. I pray God would smite him. No, that's not... It's not what I'm talking about here. Two things, very constructive things. When you are struggling in a vindictive tongue cycle where you just can't stop being unkind and cruel verbally with someone, whether it's your spouse, family member, friend, coworker, what have you. Two things that are very constructive. Number one, you could pray for them. And number two, you speak well to them. You speak well to them. You've got to go back to basics, basic manners. What did you learn as a child? And just conduct yourself accordingly. A few weeks ago, uh, I was playing with my, my little four-year-old daughter, Everly. And she's, she loves to sing. And she was singing this song. And I walked in and she's just being sweet. And I, I started singing harmony with her. But just to mess with her, I started singing discordant notes. I was singing wrong. I just wanted to be silly and be goofy and see what kind of reaction I could get. And I was way off key. And she just stopped singing and she looks at me and then she looks down. And I said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And she goes, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but daddy, you need to practice. <laughs> and she was just so sweet, you know, but what if we what if we cared about people's feelings, no matter who it was? What if you spoke to people kindly, like you'd speak to a waiter or a waitress? I, I hope you wouldn't speak unkindly to a waiter or a waitress. That'd be a terrible testimony. But the tongue directs your life. James says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Incidentally, this is the only muscle in your mouth that is unattached at one end. Did you know that? All your other muscles are attached on both ends. This muscle has an attachment, but then it just, it's free. And so the tongue moves. When muscles move, there is an action and a reaction to whatever it's attached to. When your tongue moves, what reacts to your tongue? You do. It directs your life. And James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And in your notes, number four, the tongue is destructive. We've got some of the most destructive fires in state history going on in California right now. I think a week ago I heard it was like five out of the top six fires in the history of California were happening simultaneously. Now, we're no stranger to fires in this state. Every year we have wildfires. We got a lot of timber, got a lot of brush that frankly should have been cleared, all right? Uh, but uh, it's, it's caused by the simplest things. It's just kindling waiting to go up. So just one unattended campfire, one spark, one ember is all it takes. And it'll set a whole forest ablaze and homes will be destroyed. Countless lives will be impacted. Mass destruction. James says that's what your tongue does to your life. And in verse 6 he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. Set on fire by hell. Just the way he 
verbalizes this, is so visceral. And that phrase, the entire course of life, that's what you call a hapax legomena. It appears here and nowhere else in Scripture. James has coined this term. The Greek is a little tricky to translate. It's a trochon tes genesios. If you were to translate that literally, it would be a little janky. It would come out as the wheel of your birth. The, the word there, trochon, it's where we get our word for cycle. Okay, you think wheel, cycle, uh, the cycle of life. Genesios, Genesis, it's your birth from birth to death. That's a life cycle right there. And your tongue can set your entire life cycle ablaze. You ever known anybody whose entire life was just lit up by their speech? I've known some very venomous, vindictive 60-year-olds that just, I, I just hated to be around them, listen to them. And if I could trace their life and go back in time and look at them when they were middle-aged, age 40, all right, let's say 50, middle-aged, I like that better now, uh, you would find that at that point in life, they've alienated their spouse. They've alienated their friends. They, they've hopped from one job to another, all because of this little venomous muscle in their mouth. And if you could go back further in time, you could see them uh, in their teenage years, and you could see that they alienated their friends, that, that they talked smack about everybody. If you could go back to their childhood, you could see that they were bullies at school. You could see that, that, uh, that they were bossy and, and angry and braggarts. This tongue is so destructive, it taints your life from the cradle to the grave if it's not bridled. And in your notes, ungodly speech brings great ruin, regardless of wealth, status, or intelligence. Man, it doesn't matter if you got an IQ that's off the charts, if you're making 100K a month, I don't care if you got an army of people that work for you, you can have power and prestige and position and all this stuff, this little muscle can ruin everything you have. It could wreck it all. A wicked, biting tongue that you can't control. Some of us are all mouth and no brain. You ever seen a catfish? Just, just a big old mouth, very little brain. There's an expression in the South uh, that people have said uh, probably to me, son, your catfish mouth is going to overload your hummingbird brain. We can't let that happen. We can't be all mouth and no brain because your tongue is a fire and it could set ablaze the wheel of your genesis. I've been to funerals. I've officiated at funerals. Uh, people who pass on late in life, people come to these memorials, we'll open it up, have a microphone there for impromptu eulogies and we'll wait and wait and nobody will come. And you slowly get the sense that everybody in that room is only there out of obligation to the family. If truth were told, they're glad the old goat is dead because they were not very nice. And it was the way they talked. Their entire life was tainted by a venomous tongue. They were always right. Everybody else was always wrong. They were critical. They were biting. They were cutting. And nobody's going to miss that. That is not who we want to be. And then number five in your notes, your tongue is defiling. It's defiling. James says it's a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He says it can stain your life. When he says it's a world of unrighteousness, the totality of unrighteousness is the idea here. Another hapax legomena. Uh, it means that every wicked deed that has ever been done or ever will be done, the DNA for all of that evil is in your mouth. All right? Was Joseph Stalin brutal? Yes. Can your tongue be brutal? <laughs> yes. 
Was, was Mussolini a braggart? Absolutely. Can your tongue be a braggart? Yes. Was bin Laden a liar? Yes. Can your tongue lie? Absolutely. Uh, was Mao Zedong vicious? Can your tongue be vicious? Hitler was a manipulator. Can your tongue ever manipulate people? All the DNA for all the wickedness in the world is found right here in your mouth. There's not a wicked deed in this world that does not find its DNA in the tongue of man. And it can defile your entire body, right? And it, not just you. You can taint other people with your tongue, with the wickedness of your speech. How many of you come into church and you're looking for a place to sit and you look and there's a seat, but it's right next to that person who is just this, this uh, cutting, critical, bitter person. How many of you think, oh, I'm gonna go sit by them. That'll be fun. Maybe they'll mow somebody down today. I wanna go enjoy that. No, we don't wanna experience that. How many of you wanna go sit by somebody who's violent? You don't want that. In your notes, your tongue has potential to taint the speaker and those spoken to. Have you ever noticed when you're with a gossiper that they force you into a decision? Have you ever noticed that? They're talking smack about somebody. They're criticizing somebody. If you defend the person that they're being critical of, now you're an enemy of this person. You're next on their list. If you just are silent before them, that's tacit approval right there. And of course, if you join in with them, they're guilty of the same thing that they're guilty of. And so what do you do with people like that? You avoid them. You avoid them. Paul tells Timothy in, uh, in, in his letter to him, he says, there are people who are abusive. There are people who are arrogant, who are slanderous. Uh, he says they have a form of godlessness, but they deny its power. What do you do with such people? He says, avoid such people. Just get them out of your life. Don't be around them. We cannot change the vile tongue. There's a time to stick up for people. I understand that. But as a rule, if somebody is that consistently, habitually vile, uh, whether they are a liar or a critic or a slanderer or a gossip, you need to remove yourself from that equation. And number six in your notes, the tongue is dangerous. Dangerous. James says in verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. This is true. Man has tamed virtually every critter that's out there. Genesis 2, man was to subdue the earth. God gave them that command. And the truth is, you can train anything. I've been to the circus. I've seen the elephants do their little training. You can't see that anymore because that's inhumane. So they don't have those anymore. I've been to SeaWorld. I've seen Shamu. Well, you can't see that anymore e either. Pete is not a big fan of the subdue the earth thing. But virtually every animal has been trained, bears, uh, 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 dogs, cats. Uh, I've even seen a, a, a pig that was trained to dive and swim. In Texas, there was a, a water park years ago called Aquarina. They had a, a pig that would dive off a high dive and then swim across the pool. It was the craziest thing you've ever seen. But you know what can't be tamed? The tongue. The tongue cannot be tamed. James says, verse nine, uh, excuse me, verse eight, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You see, in your notes, it is untamable and unpredictable. The tongue is like a wild animal that you think has been tamed, but then one day it snaps and it kills you. A few years back, there was a lady that had a pet chimpanzee by the name of Travis. 
Travis had been in some commercials. He was trained. Uh, he'd been on some TV shows. She loved this thing like it was her own child. She dressed Travis in little boy's clothes. He ate at the dinner table. He did tricks. He took naps with her in her bed. She had a friend that would come over who loved Travis, loved to see Travis. One day this friend came over and she had a toy for Travis, but she had a new hairstyle. Travis didn't recognize it and he freaked out and he attacked this woman and he ripped off her face and hands. And to this day, this woman is blind and disfigured because Travis, Travis was a wild animal at heart. Your tongue is like that. You cannot trust it. James says in verse nine, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. You can come to church, you can sit in here, you can be smiling, you can sing, you can know all the words to oh praise the name and Waymaker and all these songs that we sing. You can pray, you can recite scripture, you can say amen, you can bless people, you can encourage people and then you can walk out the door, get in your car and on the way home, get in an argument with your spouse, with your kids, and you can say the most vile things. I can stand up here and preach and you can say amen and I can exercise this tongue in a positive way. I can go home and with the same tongue, I can make my wife cry. And she can make me cry too, all right? Because that's how we are. We all have that ability. So what do you do about it? You talk less. You bridle. The tongue, James has already gone here. He said in chapter two, be slow to speak, be quick to hear. You want a great proverb? Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. It's like that quote attributed to Lincoln, better to be silent and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Really comes from Proverbs 17 right here. How do you tame your tongue? You can't, you bridle it. The Bible does not tell you to tame your tongue, but you can restrain it, you bridle it. And then finally, number seven in your notes, the tongue is damning, it's damning. James says it's impossible for a godly person to continually be sending out wicked speech. If this is something that just consistently comes out of you, Folks, that is not characteristic of what a Christian should be. And therefore, it is quite damning concerning the authenticity of your faith. You say, Pastor, are you telling me that because I am capable of, of flying off the handle that I'm not a Christian? Well, I told you James is a tough book. We've said that over and over. James is a very hard book. Let me tell you what James says right here. In verse 11, he says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? What's the answer to that? No. The answer is no. Uh, he says in verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Well, no, because the fruit is according to the root. He says, Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The implication, the reason your tongue cannot produce fresh living water is because the well is poisoned. You are lowering that bucket into your heart and what you draw, you speak. And if you consistently are speaking poisonous things, the well of your heart is poisoned. In your notes, personal holiness and wicked speech cannot coexist. We studied this last week. 
faith without works is dead. You're not, now you're not saved by works. I hope that's clear. But when you're truly saved, you show works. It's the result of authentic faith. Your speech is part of the works that you do as a regenerated believer. And this text does not say that if you have ever used your tongue wickedly, just to put your mind somewhat at ease, somewhat, it's not saying that if you've ever used your tongue wickedly that you're not a Christian. That's not what it's saying. Uh, but the mark of a Christian versus a non-Christian is that we struggle and yet we trust Christ. We trust Christ and we surrender to Christ. All Christians struggle. So here's a person who calls himself a Christian. They've been to church. They've gone through the motions, but their life is habitually on fire and defiled by an angry, wicked tongue. What had that Christian better do? They better check their heart. They better check their heart because the mouth is an indicator of the condition of the heart. It is God's will that your heart and your tongue be in harmony. They need to harmonize. This is how we enter the family of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then what? You believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The way you enter the family of God is that your mouth and your heart are in harmony with one another with regard to who he is and who you are. And one day, every tongue, even the unbelieving tongue, will confess that Jesus is Lord. But till then, while we are alive on this plane of existence, it is God's will that our lives and our tongues match up, be unified by our authentic faith in Jesus Christ. How do we wrap up here? What do we do with all this? Well, our final takeaways are that we must ensure our heart is right so that our speech reflects that. And then we must understand that kind words are foundational to healthy relationships. And finally, we gotta learn to bridle our tongue rather than attempt to tame it. Because the more we talk, the more we reveal our flesh. We bridle our tongue, we submit to the spirit that now indwells us. You know, one of the greatest reflections of your life and your heart is your tongue. I wanna ask you as we close, based on your speech, do people know you're a Christian? I'm not talking about when you're sharing the gospel. I'm not talking about when you articulate the components of the Romans road, okay? I'm talking about your everyday speech. Do they know? that you are a believer? Are they thinking to themselves when they hear you talk, there is something about the way this person talks that's different. Something different about this guy. Something different about this girl. Do they say, as was said about Jesus, do they think how gracious are the words that are falling from your lips? Or are they listening to you? And are they thinking, you know, I, I hear the claim that you're making. I know you're saying that you are who you say you are, but I just don't see the resemblance. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenging book. We thank you for the reality 
the hard-hitting truth of James as he speaks about our greatest hindrance with regard to an authentic testimony. And God, I pray that we will submit to you, that we will check our heart, that we will ask the right question, is everything as it should be? That we might draw from a well that is pure, that has life-giving water, and not draw from the well of the flesh, but of the Spirit. We pray for your blessing upon all within the sound of my voice today. In the name of Jesus, amen.